Hello, everyone. I'm Gary Urbanowitz, your host for this Throwback FDNY podcast. Remember, you can listen to all the past episodes of Throwback FDNY by going to the website of the New York City Fire Museum at nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny and choosing the digital platform you use for listening to podcasts. Each show has three segments going back in time about the FDNY and its history. Now let's start this month's show. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, the FDNY appoints its first chaplains in 1899. In 1932, Georgiana McMenamin, the last FDNY matron, is hired. And in 1982, Harriet Duran, one of the first female firefighters, is appointed. In continuing to model much of the structure of the FDNY along the lines of the U.S. military, in 1899, Fire Commissioner John J. Scannell decided that it would be appropriate for the department to have chaplains. So on March 28th of that year, he named two clergymen to serve in that capacity. They were Reverend William St. Elmo Smith from St. Vincent de Paul Roman Catholic Church and Reverend James LeBaron Johnson of Grace Episcopal Church. Both were officially appointed as, quote, honorary chaplains with the rank of battalion chief, end quote. Initially, they received no compensation and in fact, they had to purchase their own equipment, which included a dress uniform, complete with a $100 gold badge, and they had to own a horse and buggy. The department provided them with turnout gear, a fire alarm telegraph in their home, and a driver for their carriage. At the sounding of a third alarm, the chaplains responded. As they resided in Manhattan, they were only called out for fires in that borough. The first fire the novice chaplains responded to was on March 30th, a mere two days after their appointment. The fire occurred in the Colonial Stables at 249 West 124th Street. Since then, the chaplains have responded to hundreds of thousands of alarms. As the years went on, other chaplains were appointed from a wide range of faiths. Since 1899, a total of 39 chaplains have served the department, with tenures ranging from less than one year all the way up to 33 years. I think it's important to note that although chaplains by nature are each connected with a specific faith or religion, their role with the department reaches far beyond that affiliation. Chaplains provide emotional and psychological, as well as spiritual support to the members of the department, regardless of any of their own beliefs. They are highly trained counselors, capable of careful listening and providing insightful advice. And yes, if called for, they can address whatever spiritual needs the member might need. On that terrible day in September 2001, one of the department's chaplains, Father Michael Judge, a Franciscan friar, was one of the 343 members of the FDNY who made the supreme sacrifice. He was such a beloved member of the department that it has been said, as officially designated victim number 0001, he led the way for those that joined him in the day's death toll. Fortunately, there are some uplifting stories in the history of our chaplains. In 2015, the FDNY broke new ground with the appointment of the first female clerk. She is Reverend Ann Cansfield from the Greenpoint Reformed Church. Reverend Cansfield studied at the New Brunswick Theological Seminary, where her father once served as dean, and her grandfather was a firefighter. Reverend Cansfield has a recent autobiography, Be the Brave One. Hello, everyone. I'm Jennifer Brown, the new executive director of the New York City Fire Museum. Thank you for listening to our Throwback FDNY podcast. We invite you to become a member of our wonderful cultural institution in Lower Manhattan. 
We preserve the history of the fire department in New York City, educate the public on fire and life safety, and celebrate the wonderful traditions of the FDNY. To learn more about our membership program and the perks it offers, go to nycfiremuseum.org. Everyone and anyone who's familiar with the history and traditions of the FDNY, and all fire services for that matter, know that the bonds forged among members of the department have been characterized as those of a family. And if you have ever lived it or experienced it firsthand, you know exactly what that means. When the New York City Fire Department transitioned from a volunteer to a paid force in 1865, any time a member gave his life in the line of duty, a fire company, often the fallen member's own company, took it upon themselves to hire the spouse of their fallen comrade as the company matron. I must point out that not all matrons were related to a firefighter who made the supreme sacrifice. However, those who were were given priority. Now remember, this dates back to a time when gender roles were much more pronounced than today. So for a woman to have a principal responsibility as a mother figure to the firefighters was consistent with the times. The responsibilities of the matrons were to take care of the members of a company by doing essential tasks like cleaning the firehouse, doing the laundry, sewing, and preparing meals. The salary paid to matrons was money raised from members of the department in a matron fund. This was done on a sliding scale, as specified in the rules and regulations, which, in 1930, ranged from $3 for men below the rank of fireman second grade, up to $6 for those above the rank of captain. Again, in those days when the benefits afforded to widows was not enough to exist on, becoming a matron was looked upon as a necessity. But on one important note, the bond forged between a matron and her company was as strong as steel. Company members truly loved this person, who was not only a vital member of the firehouse family, but also in the lives of the firefighters, often giving valuable counsel, advice, and caring. And for that, the love flowed both ways. In 1932, Georgiana McMenamin was hired to be the matron of Engine Company 40 and Ladder Company 35 on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Her husband, Fireman James McMenamin of Engine Company 75, died of a heart attack in quarters. The monthly death benefit paid to Mrs. McMenamin was $50, equivalent to about $1,035 today. Her job as matron added $13 to that, an increase of over 25%. Mrs. McMenamin worked at the firehouse until 1991, retiring at the age of 90. When she did, she was the last remaining matron. She passed away in 2004, and the legacy of the FDMI matrons died with her. It is important for us to pay tribute not only to these women from a time gone by, but to all those unsung heroes who support the members of the FDNY in so many ways. Thank you, Mrs. McMenamin. Thank you to all the FDNY matrons who served the department for over 100 years. And thank you to all the support staff who helped the firefighters, EMTs, and paramedics do their life-saving work. The New York City Fire Museum Shop offers a wide selection of museum souvenirs and FDNY licensed products. To acknowledge the 20th anniversary of the tragic events of September 11, 2001, and the 343 members of the FDNY who gave their lives that day, we are offering several commemorative items, including a Maltese cross decal and lapel pin, a 9-11 Memorial Challenge coin, and a beautiful high-quality 343 t-shirt. Proceeds from all sales help fulfill our mission to preserve, educate, and celebrate, and to remember the brave men and women of the FDNY, not just on September 11th, but every day. You can make purchases at the museum 
or online by visiting our website, www.nycfiremuseum.org forward slash shop. This segment will sound a little different. I'm pleased to be joined by one of the first female firefighters appointed in 1982, Harriet Duran. Thank you so much for joining me today, Harriet. It's a pleasure to be here, Gary. So, Harriet, I know you had an interesting career. Could you tell us a little bit about what you were doing? I did social work for a while for Housing Authority. And then in 1977, they offered the women to be able to take the fire department test. Right. And I took that, and I also took Nassau County Police Department. Oh. They were offering at the same time. That's interesting. So both of them called me a month, the uh, Nassau County called me a month before the fire department. But you didn't take that job. No, no. I, they said, well, you got a year to come back. But I said, no, I'm going to be a firefighter. So at that time, I mean, FDNY was totally men, so you were a trailblazer with that first group. What yes. made you want to do that? I wanted to do something totally radical, totally different. I just wanted to step out the box and... <laughs> so what was it like in probationary firefighter school since oh. that was a whole new world back then? The Rock. The Rock. That's what it was called, the fire academy. And it was like really hell. And you had a lot of instructors that came there that wasn't very nice to the women. Mm -hmm. And uh, they would yell things like, where's Judge Sifton now? It, was, it wasn't really... It wasn't really conducive, and it made me think for a very long time that, did I really make a good choice? Oh. But uh, we had the uh, Vulcan Society, mm -hmm. was very much in our corner, and uh, I, I think that helped ease us into the transition, mm -hmm. into the job. And I know another organization was begun, the United Women Firefighters. Did that exist yes. back then, or did, were no, you no, part it, of that first uh, organization? Yeah, but it, it didn't exist until the women started getting out of the uh, fire academy. I see. Um, I found academically it was easy, mm -hmm. okay? You were well prepared, I mean. Yeah, I found that, uh, but I, I think a lot of the things with the, uh, the evolutions that we had, you didn't really ever experience them. For example, the knots. Mm -hmm. Now I know you were severely injured in a fire and without asking you to relive the entire painful experience, could you tell us a little bit about that? The lieutenant and the uh, irons guy, they ran, we ran to the window and they ran to the, and it was an explosion. I never ever saw light like this in my life. And I was right underneath it when it exploded in the middle of the room. Mm -hmm. And for a moment it blinded me and then all of this stuff came over on my, I had the new bunker gear. Mm -hmm. Actually, it was the first time I wore it, brand new. Wow. And I didn't realize that you don't feel anything in the bunker gear. But then by that time, the fire, I was on fire, and the fire was coming up my neck all here. And it kind of got well, me out of my shock. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was in shock. And, and I saw the engine pull up, 233, down the block. And then the guys started running, running, and they ran with a hose line. And I was like, oh, here come the engine guys. But by that time, I was, the fire was starting to engulf me. And I just jumped. I closed my eyes. And uh, what happened, the guy, engine guys ran up and blocked my fall so that I never broke anything. 
Wow. Uh, I was really very, very lucky because I spent quite a bit of time on medical leave for about three and a half years. And you came back to work full time? No. They needed uh, people in the fire safety unit. So they hired 12 ambassadors, we were called. And our job was to go into the schools, to go into all the businesses and teach fire safety, and helping other people be able to get out of fires and teach them. Uh, that was another calling that I really didn't uh, realize that would be that great. So what would you tell young women about considering a career at the fire service, or specifically the FDNY? Go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Yeah. Um, I came in for the, the monetary value of it, but I found a higher calling that is very, very hard to explain. Yeah, you know, at that time when you were describing in your career, the city was going through a horrible, horrible financial crisis that a lot of people don't, either don't know or don't remember. So there was a whole different scenario back in your time. You had a great opportunity presented to you. Yes. That was, you were a trailblazer. You, know, you didn't know that would have been available two years before that. Yeah, and I, I, I just, I, it's a higher calling being a firefighter. It's someone who's giving up their life. It's like a soldier, really. Mm -hmm. Someone who goes to war and gives up his life so his countrymen and family can lead a better life. And that's what the, I see with the fire department. Um, it's like a battlefield when we go out there every day. And now with all of the new kind of uh, uh, technical things with the uh, materials, uh, it's, it's, very, it, it, it's very challenging. But I, I think that that's what happened to me. I got transformed in a little way. <laughs> <laughs> All new career. I think it's important too to know to acknowledge the fact that firefighting is a dangerous profession and that firefighters often endure injuries and medical conditions as a result of their job. The public is generally unaware of these often life-changing or career-ending situations that don't make front-page headlines. And Harriet, I must say that what you endure is remarkable and I admire your courage and fortitude for overcoming it. Thank you, Gary. Well, Harriet, thank you for joining us today and uh, sharing your story. It's really been a pleasure to have worked with you over the years, and uh, I want to thank you for all you've done for the people of this city of New York before, during, and after your career with the FDNY. Fraternally yours. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. And now it's time for our Throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. What federally funded program was implemented by the FDNY in 1972 to hire young men from disadvantaged neighborhoods in New York City to staff a fire salvage corps and a community fire safety education program? The answer can be found in our last episode. And remember, you can listen to that and all previous episodes by going to nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny. The Throwback FDNY podcast is brought to you by the New York City Fire Museum, the official museum of the FDNY, with help from the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official philanthropic organization of the department. I'm Gary Urbanowitz. I'll leave you with this important safety tip. Daylight savings time has just begun, and that means it's time to change the batteries in your smoke and carbon monoxide detectors. If you have one of the newer detectors with non-replaceable batteries, use the test button to ensure that the device is working once a month. Only working smoke and CO detectors can save your life, so please 
be sure you and your family are fully protected. We can all do our part to be a partner with the fire department by promoting fire safety. Thank you and be safe.